0: Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. It's the big bang people have been fearing within media. That is how one commentator has described the shock shutdown of TV3's news hub. The proposal to close all news operations would leave just one TV news channel, a change which commentators and politicians say is a hit to democracy. Here's how News Hub anchors Mike McRoberts and Sam Hayes began their coverage last night.
1: good evening. After providing daily news for almost 35 years, three looks set to lose News Hub Live at six and its all-associated news programmes, including its online news platform.
2: Staff were emailed this morning to prioritise their attendance at a meeting ahead of anything else they may be doing to find out about significant changes that may impact their role. At that meeting, staff were told there was a proposal to close the newsroom on June 30th.
1: Investigations correspondent Michael Mara has the details, which could mean almost 300 staff in news
0: will lose their jobs. Now, the local arm of News Hub's parent company made a 34 Million Dollar Loss in 2022, a path which the NZ Warner Brothers Discovery boss, Glenn Kine, says is impossible to withstand. We have not
3: asked uh, for assistance from either the Broadcasting Minister or the Prime Minister. We couldn't value local news any more highly. We um, we love it and I'm you know, personally very, very proud of NewsHub and the organisation. Um, unfortunately we have not been able to find a way to make the production of News Hub financially viable into the future and we, we as a commercial media company, you know, cannot keep sustaining losses indefinitely.
0: Now Glenn Kine says while news services will be axed, shows which are fully funded through New Zealand on Air might have a chance of survival.
3: The new operating model for the business will centre around three now supported by the Linear Channel, so three Bravo. Um, Eden, Russian, HGTV will con- will continue. Um, clearly, the proposal was that three uh, no longer has news. The core content pillars for the business will be local programming in conjunction with either our co-production partners or funding partners. There will still be third-party acquisitions as we do today. So things like what's on screen right now, the likes of the Meredith Fairside Australia, etc. And so our intention is to keep as much local programming on the channel as possible. MPs shared
0: their sympathies and their concerns yesterday about the wider implications of the shutdown.
1: It's a sad day for many employees personally. It's also a sad day for New Zealand's democracy which requires a competitive media market
0: so that people can get a wide range of views about what's happening in their country.
4: Well frankly for those surrounded so staff and uh, their spouses and their family, this is an absolute disaster but it's also a disaster for this country's democracy. Democracy relies on an informed citizenry. Being informed relies on debate, and that relies on a diversity of sources of information.
2: The Broadcasting Minister, though, seemed less concerned, saying it is something outlets around the globe are experiencing – Melissa Lee was given a heads up by the network chief uh, Glenn Klein on Tuesday night before he broke the news to the newsroom. She said Warner Brothers Discovery didn't ask the government for financial assistance, and she is clear the government can't intervene.
5: I, I, I don't think there is anything that we could have actually done to actually assist them. It, it is actually a, it is actually it is actually a structural issue. It's a company that actually felt that their uh, business model wasn't actually working.
2: The staff members left yesterday morning's meeting where the news was broken. They told RNZ they saw some cuts coming, but nothing like what was announced.
6: I think I'd be lying if I said that none of us expected something like this to happen at some point. The fact that the whole newsroom was
7: axed was, I think, quite quite a shock.
8: I think it's quite clear that the, the audiences
4: are fragmenting, that the current commercial model for news is broken. They are amazing
7: as well, and they've continued that legacy and that they should be proud of everything that they've done.
2: The Prime Minister is refusing to rule out freeing up access to semi-automatic guns. The Government is rewriting the Arms Act this term, and changes may include allowing competitive shooters access to military-style guns for sport. Christopher Luxon came under pressure to spell out his position on the proposal yesterday. Our political reporter Anika Smith has more.
5: A combative question time.
0: There are no papers that have been received. There's been no discussion that's taken place. There have been no decisions that have been made in Cabinet.
5: Christopher Luxon under pressure from from the opposition to spell out his position on any changes to semi-automatic gun laws. Why
4: won't he rule out liberalising access to military-style semi-automatic weapons when the police have made it very clear to the government, both present and former, that doing so would result in more of those weapons getting into the hands of gang members and others who intend to break the law?
0: because no papers have been received, no discussion has been had and no decisions have been made in Cabinet.
5: Associate Justice Minister Axe Nicole McKee is heading up the rewrite. Everything is on the table from introducing a graduated licensing system to allowing competitive shooters access to military style guns again. These firearms were banned after the March 15 terror attacks, though Ms McKee doesn't see it that way. She points to those who still hold these types of guns through exemptions for either pest control or collector's items. Semi-automatics were never banned. They've always been there. We've got six 6,600 people
9: legitimately in position of them. What is important for our Muslim communities and all of those that have been harmed by gun crime is that we have legislation in place that keeps them safe, and that's what we plan on doing.
5: Nicole McKee may have her own changes in mind, but she'll need the support of her Cabinet colleagues.
9: It's not what I'm hoping to achieve, it's what we are going to achieve. It's safer communities once we have the Arms Act rewrite that goes through at the end of this term.
5: Labour leader Chris Hipkins, who was a cabinet minister when semi-automatics were banned, is adamant the former government made the right decision.
4: I'm open to having conversations about you know, recreational shooting and whether the regulation on rifle ranges went too far and so on. I'm totally open to having that debate. But the debate around semi-automatic weapons, I think, has been resolved. We shouldn't have them.
5: It's expected legislation will be introduced before the end of this year. That was our political reporter, Annika Smith,
2: on the debate there around uh, the government's rewriting of the Arms Act. Well, the cost of food here continues to climb, with New Zealand among the countries that have seen the biggest increases over the past 12 months. That's according to a new report from World Vision. It shows that Aotearoa saw an increase of more than 50% in the cost of the 10 most popular food items, uh, foods such as rice, bananas, chicken, tomatoes, eggs and oil. This is despite the price of food trending down in some countries. Well, joining us now for more on this is World Vision's Head of Advocacy and Justice, Rebecca Armstrong. Kia ora. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Okay, so you looked at food prices over the last year. Where exactly does New Zealand sit in all of that?
6: We had one of the uh, highest increases uh, um, from 70 of the countries that were surveyed. So we had a 56% increase in a one-year period, um, which was quite drastic in the context of this report um, and just to, to note that Australia had a 21% decrease, so there's got to be some questions around why our prices are so so large.
2: Yeah, no, I'll get to that in a moment. So why did our food prices go up so much? Did the study find that?
6: The study looked at particularly the impact of conflict and climate change on uh, and global supply chains, and um, we can see that New Zealand's really affected by these, uh, especially with Cyclone Gabriel last year. That really disrupted our um, Our kumaras and our our onions, our price of food. Um, Rice and wheat from the Ukraine and India were also uh, really affected. And um, yeah, we're just feeling the impact of some of those global supply chain issues uh, from conflicts taking place around the world as well. We think that Cyclone Gabriel probably had a bigger effect than we realise.
2: Sure, yeah, with those uh, f- uh, fruit and food-producing parts of the east co- coast of the North Island, uh, especially there. Uh, the cost of food is going down in some places, as you mentioned, including Australia. Uh, where else is that happening and why is that happening?
6: Canada was another um, key place that's, comparable to New Zealand um, but I think one of the key messages that comes from this report is that it, it is increasing in the places of most vulnerability so it is the uh, countries in Africa that are, are facing you know, real starvation issues and hunger um, and really drastic increases in prices and the more vulnerable of a country you are to climate sh- um, related issues uh, and conflict, the higher your prices are going to increase.
2: Why would it be that Australia which is uh, also, I mean, suffering from the same climate pressures that we are. Why Why did climate have an impact here and not there?
6: I think they produce um, wheat and rice in particular, for example. Um, they are primary producers of those products and that potentially has an impact. Um, we we get our wheat from Australia um, and so y- you can see that they just haven't been impacted so much by some of these glo- global issues because they're primary producers of some of these um, products themselves. Um, they also haven't had... Potentially, some of the the widespread effects that we've had, uh, experienced from Cyclone Gabriel. they have had other, um, you know, environmental related problems, fires, um, but they haven't seemed to affect the supply chain, the domestic supply chain, as much as um, Cyclone Gabriel did in New Zealand.
2: So, just finally, what action uh, would you like to see, or could you suggest, in terms of combating the the rising food prices?
6: Uh, well, in a country that does produce enough food for 40 million people, it is um, awful that around 21% of our um, children in particular are not accessing nutritious food. Um, our poverty indicators rose last week at 2.5%, and it's it's fruit and vegetables that are, that children aren't able to eat we want a um look into the the food systems to make them more resilient and strong but we also think that New Zealand needs to increase its ODA its overseas development assistance target to uh, 0.5% in this year's budget so that it can help respond to some of the, the greater crises that are affecting people in terms of food where starvation, people are dying from
2: starvation. Thank you for your time this morning. That was the World Vision's Head of Advocacy and Justice, Rebecca Armstrong. Their new study there shows New Zealand's uh, food prices have seen some of the biggest increases over the past uh, 12 months uh, compared to the 70 countries they looked at.
0: Well, free flu vaccines for Maori and Pacifica people aged between 55 and 64 years of age are no longer to be free. Pharmac has confirmed in a media release that free flu vaccines for these groups would no longer be funded. Uh, It says in 2022 and 2023, Pharmac widened access to vaccines for this group and for children up to 12 years old. Uh, using the government's COVID-19 budget. That budget has now run out. Uh, we've invited Pharmac on the show this morning to explain this, but joining us to speak about the implications is Dr Rawiri McCree-Jensen, uh, Chief Medical Officer at Akai Fi Order Māori Health Authority. Uh kia ora, good morning.
7: Kia ora, Karen. yeah, Thanks for
0: having me. Uh, nice to talk to you. So yes, this was the release. Pharmac put out this release I think yesterday. Were you surprised by this?
7: Yeah, I was surprised. I got the um, heads up uh, about a week or 10 days ago. And it is surprising. It's a little disappointing as well, because I think it was a really important contribution to, you know, better health outcomes for a group that's particularly vulnerable. Māori and Pacific, way more likely to be hospitalised for flu in that age group. So that that's good for that patient population. But it's also really good for our system to have fewer people being admitted to hospital for flu illnesses. Uh, So it was a good thing for them to do. I was really surprised that they had a time limited um, ethnicity adjuster. And I'm really keen to work with them to, you know, get it back into a better place. I think it's really important.
0: Yes, because I think part of the rationale here was for the fact that this group was given free flu vaccinations is that they, they die
7: sooner. Oh. yeah that's right that's right and and especially exposed to flu illnesses you know more likely to live in overcrowded houses more likely to have other comorbidities so it's an important group to do a really good job of of looking after in the health terms i look I'll, i will correct one thing I think they're returning to the old system where if you are that age group you know whether Maori Pacific or whatever not then y- If you've got these comorbidities, your primary care physician could get you um, funded eligibility for the flu vaccine. But it's a couple of extra steps, and it's really unlikely that that our health system is going to do a fantastic job of doing that for Māori and Pacific. We've got a a history of under-delivering, so I think it was way better when it was simply Māori and Pacific over the age of 55, can be free for flu vaccine and and that's where we need to get it back to to be honest
0: and what do you make too of this uh, the fact that it was paid for children up to 12 that'll go as well now is flu as much of an
7: issue for infants and people under 12 yeah that was a really good um, expansion of the flu vaccination as well I think it's really important again that population um, more vulnerable and we definitely want to keep them out of hospital so I think it was good spend and, and I get it, Pharmac will always be in a you know, tight um, financial situation trying to determine how to spend the money. But I think once you've started those two, we can see the benefits. And I think we should be investing um, that sort of uh, resource to support vulnerable populations. So, yeah, keen to work with Pharmac to get it back.
0: All right thank you very much for that. That uh, is just commenting uh, that was uh, Dr Rawiri McCree-Jansen Chief Medical Officer at Akai Whai Ora Māori Health Authority in response to a change there around the eligibility. Free flu vaccinations will not be uh, automatically available for Māori and Pacifica between the ages of 55 and 64. As you heard there if they do have other health underlying conditions, they may be eligible, but this is a change because the money had come from the COVID-19 budget and that has run out. We've invited Pharmac to come on the show this morning uh, to expand a bit further on that. Well, at 11 o'clock this morning, the Black Caps will take on Australia at Wellington's Basin Reserve in the first test of a two-match cricket series. It has been, this is unbelievable, 31 years since New Zealand took out its biggest rival on its own soil. And the venue was, uh, uh, certainly was, was sold out a month ago. The second test at Christchurch's Hagley Oval in March is also on the cusp of being sold out. Now, co-founder of the Beige Brigade, this is a community of diehard New Zealand cricket fans, of course, beige being the colour that the uh, New Zealand cricket team used to wear back in the 80s. Uh, this is Paul Ford, and he will be down at the Basin bright and early this morning. I spoke with Paul earlier about his highly anticipated, well, this highly anticipated matchup.
8: New Zealand cricket fans, just fans of cricket uh, in general, probably around the world, are really looking forward to this game. Absolutely gagging for it. I mean, we've been starved of test cricket against Australia. We only play them on average kind of once a year over the last 20 years, and it's been a long, long time between drinks. 31 years since we beat the Australians in New Zealand. Uh, Just to put that in context, Pat Cummins, the Australian captain, is 30 years old. So he has never been alive when uh, New Zealand has beaten Australia in a test match in Aotearoa. That's a disgrace. And uh, hopefully things can change over the next couple of weeks. And in your view, when it comes
0: to cricket, test matches still hold the number one place?
8: Oh, hell yes. Yes, I mean... There's lots of chat about uh, the, the death of Test cricket. And, of course, there's been this massive invasion of T20 cricket. And, frankly, the game, you know, with its, uh, you know it's quite an academic, complicated game. But uh, the twists and turns, the, the, the magic of, of Test cricket, people that get into it, you know, you really do start to understand that. And, yes, when things uh, don't come together, like, for example, for this game, we've got two great teams at an amazing venue with a great sense of history. It's on free-to-air TV. Um, you know, we don't have the best players sort of being taken away to, to IPL matches in general, so we've got you know, fantastic matchup. Um, it's really, really hard to beat Test cricket. It's going to be a magical, magical few days down there at the Basin.
0: Well, let's hope it goes five days. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the ability of New Zealand to win this game, how important will the toss be? How do you think New Zealand goes about winning this? Is it putting them in early, hoping that there's a bit of movement in the pitch and bowling
8: them out? Yeah, I think you're absolutely bang on. Yeah, that verdant green basin reserve pitch would be a lovely toss to win. I think for New Zealand, Go, kind of goes against the grain for Australia too to to put teams in. They generally like to, to bat. So uh, yeah, New Zealand can get in there early and have the youngsters. They're going to have uh, young Willow Rourke. Um, you know, only a, played a couple of, uh, only played one Test match, and he's going to be steaming in. he's going to be pumped up. Um, Tim Southey, the captain, massively reliant on him. Uh, Matt Henry getting it to nibble around out there would be, be fantastic. I, I think, um yeah, that that's certainly the the road to victory for New Zealand is to make hay this morning with the ball. Um, there are a few little injury concerns. You know, we've obviously got Devin Conway and Kyle Jamison out and we've got Matt Henry, Daryl Mitchell and Ratchin Ravindra all coming back after a bit of uh, a few niggles over the last couple of weeks. So, yeah, get those bowlers in there steaming in and, and rip into that Australian top order. Hard to see much
0: weakness in this Australian team. They are the test champions. They have uh, so much depth and so much class.
8: Yeah, they do. They do. A very, very settled lineup. You know, with New Zealand, there's been a few comings and goings with, with injuries and the like. Uh, retirements, of course, with, with no Neil Wagner there. But yeah, this Australian team, they've got a, a couple of changes. They've got Steve Smith. Uh, notorious Steve Smith at the top of the order. They have got Cameron Green in at number four. So you know they're, they're not overly settled in that, that top four, but their bowling, in particular, is extraordinarily scary. And of course, they're Australia. They're super cocky. So they've been talking about uh, their whole summer being a seven-nil Test series uh, whitewash. The West Indies tipped up the apple cart with that win, the Shamar Joseph win at uh, the Gabba. But uh, yeah, they'll be they'll, they'll think that they're coming to New Zealand to, to give us another hiding like they normally do.
0: That's Paul Ford from uh, the cricket fan group, the Beige Brigade. Now, weather, weather, yes. Uh, A few people texting in saying there's been a bit of rain about in Wellington this morning. Uh, The forecast today in terms of, so for the cricketing outlook, partly cloudy with one or two showers this morning, fine breaks increasing. It's going to be southeasterly. Hopefully by the time uh, the test kicks off, the rain will have gone away. It's going to make that, uh, I think, winning that toss very important. Uh, You've got to imagine the Black Caps will try and bowl first.
2: OK, well today Wellington City councillors will decide the fate of a $32 million deal to fix the major eyesore in the capital's CBD. Now the council is proposing to buy the land under the quake-prone Reading Cinema's shopping complex on Courtney Place and to lease it back to the cinema company. The building's been closed since uh, January 2019 because of its quake risk. Wellington Mayor Tori Farno joins us now. Kia ora, Good morning. Kia ora, morning. Now, you support this proposal. Just tell us how exactly it would work and, and why you think it's a good idea.
9: Um, So I do think it's a great idea. So it forms part of a wider plan to revitalise the city centre, Courtney Place. We also have things like the Golden Mile and Porniki Promise and hopefully more housing after we get past the district plan. Uh, What this particular deal does is that um, it's it's fiscally neutral um, and it will allow reading to um, initiate some design work, which we would approve um, and develop it over the next couple of years so that it's ready to open by 2027.
2: It's costing $32 million, so just tell us how it's fiscally neutral.
9: So um, they will lease the land back from um, a WCC, and any any rent will cover um, the council's borrowing and other costs. Um, they have the first right to buy back the land any time within the first 15 years of the lease, but we also can sell the land to someone else any time after the first 10 years of the lease. So the intention is to sell the land back um, at a profit.
2: And they bowl it bowl it, and build something nice in its place?
9: Uh, redeveloped and strengthened, but the intention is certainly to um, bring back the cinema, uh, develop a, a full entertainment centre, which also has uh, food, drink, and, of course, retail as well.
2: So it's been controversial. Uh, documents mm. around this were leaked. Do you have the numbers to get it through, do you think?
9: Yes, yes, we do. I'm confident we do.
2: And what kind of precedent would this set?
9: I hope it sets a precedent for um you know further development in our city. It tells uh businesses developers hey we're we we're ready uh, to start building um it'll it'll set it'll pave the way for Courtney Place to become the entertainment precinct that we've missed um but it's also a good way to look at um innovative ways that we can, especially in such a financially tight environment um to be able to develop things like this.
2: Just in terms of, you know, just referring back to it being a precedent, I mean, there are plenty of other, you know, private property owners and other property owners who've had to bear this cost themselves. So, why does Reading get special treatment?
9: Um, I wouldn't call it special treatment. I thought I would uh, call it a creative way to get around the very. Okay,
2: why do they get a creative way?
9: Um, because for,
2: especially for my Meralty
9: and other people, city revitalisation is a core priority um, and the development of reading is um, one of the most effective ways to do that. So we have um, targeted the reading buildings that uh, many Wellingtonians have complained for for years um, and the strong need for it to get done up again.
2: Are they not able to borrow the money in their own right?
9: Um, it's, uh, yes, they can. It's more difficult, but we're actually, um, we prefer this way of doing it, the, the leasing back to them and getting some revenue from that as well. Um, and, um, yeah, we're quite happy with how this has come to be.
2: Why is it preferable for the for council money to be
5: involved?
9: Well, because, I mean, at, at its simplest, it's essentially, uh, I suppose, like a loan, but we'll be gaining, once it's ready and set, Um, we'll be generating over a million dollars in revenue um, for the council, and that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, but I mean, there's risk involved though, isn't there?
9: Of course there is, and we've looked at... So so why
2: why is that preferable then?
9: Anything we do, especially with developments, there are going to be risks, but we have strong mitigations for all of those as well, and that's exactly what we're discussing today uh, in our meeting.
2: OK, we are about to hear from a councillor who has an opposing view. Uh, thank you for your time this morning. That was uh, Wellington Mayor Tory Farno.
0: Well, more now on inflation. Yesterday, the Reserve Bank held its cash rate uh, in its first monetary policy statement of the year. And the only surprise really seemed to be that it had a slightly softer tone with none of the threats of rate rises perhaps heard last November. Instead, the RBNZ was talking about balanced inflation risks and an economy headed for a soft landing. There were a couple of hooks. The room to tolerate any negative inflation surprises is limited and the central bank is ready to act if global risks, such as shipping costs, start to spill over into local price behaviour. Governor Adrian Orr says there were only two options on the table. A rise or no change, and in the end, uh, it wasn't actually a difficult decision.
1: We weren't close at all. Um, We were very pleased that we weren't close because um, the economy has been evolving um, very much as as we hoped it would uh, and expected it would, and that's been the case over the last 12 months. So uh, monetary policy is doing its work.
10: But? It's still
0: got more work to do because you say we don't have any tolerance or we don't have much tolerance room for any upside surprises. So, suggests that you're still on a knife edge. Uh,
1: no, I, I don't believe knife edge. I mean, the we the outlook for inflation is very balanced. Uh, there's no particular. Um, we're confident we're going to be back within our band um, uh, second half of this year. And near the midpoint um, next year, so with uh, you know, below three percent, and then at two percent. So we're confident there. Um, it's just where we're starting from. We're starting at um, uh, we're starting from above our band, meaning we have uh, less room to accept risks to the upside, and plenty of room to accept surprises to the downside.
0: So what are the key risks, uh, the major risks that you see at the moment?
1: mostly global Uh, domestically the economy is is um, uh, behaving as anticipated with interest rates where they are and the terms of trade where they are and so you know spending is subdued inflation has declined uh, inflation expectations have declined the labor market capacity pressures have eased so so you know, that is all business as usual or business as expected, given where interest rates are.
0: But those domestic uh, but those domestic pressures that have worried you in the past, rents, rates, insurance, those sort of things, they're still there. They're still pressing on you.
1: They are, but they are relative prices. Some of those, you know, those price pressures are, are related to individual business activities. We only control the price of money. We will make sure that um, none of those relative price pressures um, spill over into aggregate inflation. We don't want people hiding behind a price rise and using that as an excuse to raise their prices. Um, if people need to rise their relative, uh, raise their relative price, so be it. Um, our main risks are, are international. Um, mm-hmm. The global economy is slowing. Uh, that's helping on our disinflation challenge. Uh, but meanwhile, geopolitical risks, climate risks um, are always there. Um, we've talked about shipping costs. Um, the domestic side of the story is is reasonably benign.
0: But you're still projecting no prospect of rate cuts before really the middle of next year.
10: Why so far away?
1: Uh, we just want to make sure that um, price setting, price behaviours and the supply capacity of the economy can actually meet the demand side and so we're saying um, if we stay where we are subject to no future shocks then over time we can reduce interest rates back to a more neutral level.
0: And that was the Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr speaking to our business editor Giles uh, Beckford. Some teachers refuse to help when the government asked them, just days before Christmas, to write guidelines for teaching new NCEA standards. They weren't swayed by the offer of $5,000 to complete the work either uh, by late January, and the Education Ministry staff had to do nearly half of it themselves. In the end, some of it was not up to scratch. A third was sent back for revision. Our education correspondent, John Gerritsen, has been
10: talking to teachers. Good morning, John. Good morning, Corrin. Just remind me, what was the work? what, is, what were these guidelines? Okay, they're called subject learning outcomes, they're a new thing um, that basically describe very briefly what a student needs to know, what they need to be able to do in order to pass these new NCEA Level 1 standards, four standards for each subject that have been introduced this year. Now, the Education Minister, Erica Stanford, announced on the 31st of January that this resource was now available and, and she was um, characterising it as a really important support for teachers to introduce these standards that, that really should have been in place last year so that teachers had more guidance and Knew what they were doing um, to introduce them. So when were they when were
0: they first mooted? So how long do they have all? Uh, because it, you know, the just before Christmas sounds like a rush, but it should have well, been that's d- right. sooner, right?
10: That- That's that's right. Well, the the ministry went to various subject associations, so chemistry teachers, science teachers, English teachers, and said, look, can you write these objectives? Um, They asked them on the 20th of December, can you write them by the 22nd of January for publication on the 31st of January? Now, one of the subject associations said to me that "That was a huge stress um, and a lot of pressure and a ridiculous timeline. And that was from an association that agreed to do it. Others just said no. So 19 subject associations agreed to do this work 14 said no. Um, and, you know, the, the, the views that I've had back from teachers are quite mixed in terms of whether this was even needed. Certainly in the sciences, it sounds like teachers did feel underprepared. Um, other teachers have said, well, actually, there was a fair bit of support out there. And if you weren't paying attention to these new level one standards, maybe you maybe had your head in the sand. So it's a bit of a mixed view on whether these were even needed. And what they were offering up $5,000 to do it. Yeah, the the ministry has told me that the development of these subject learning outcomes and and also um, workshops to present them to teachers has cost two hundred and seventy thousand um, dollars. And as I say, you know, some some for some subject associations, that money just wasn't enough. You know, they they wanted their, their Christmas and New Year holiday.
0: Yeah, it's a bit tough. Uh, at the end of a long year for teachers to sort of face that sort of uh, time frame. Now you say. That the Ministry has had to do half of it themselves because what, it's not up to
10: scratch. Well, the Ministry had to do um fourteen of the subject learning objectives uh, for fourteen subjects. Now, so what you're looking at thirty three in total, um, eleven, at least eleven have had to go back further work. and we're not sure who's, who, who was responsible for that work, but I know um, one of the subject associations said that um, in, in their subject area, the, the work that's been done, it's just a cut and paste job. So they weren't impressed by it at all. So what now? Well... There's workshops going on now to um, introduce these subject uh, learning uh, outcomes to teachers. Um, Feedback I've had from some teachers is that it's really good, it's really helpful. But others um, need more work and they're not going to be um, presented to teachers for another few weeks. Um, So there is some support out there. Um, And as I say, there's just this mixed view on how much it was needed and how helpful it is. Thank you for the update. That is
0: our education correspondent, John Gerritsen,
3: You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories.